Only peace is reserved for the baby, not for us here this morning. So hope we can hope we can stay awake here. All right. Well, as I mentioned already, we are in the heart of the Advent season as we look forward to celebrating the birth of Jesus, God in the flesh, who came to earth to save us from our sins. And I thought I'd start off by helping all of you men out here this morning and remind you that Christmas is next Monday, okay? So go ahead and get your Christmas shopping started this week if you haven't already. Maybe put something in your spouse's or your wife's Christmas stocking that hasn't been filled for the last, I don't know, however long, right? Uh, Let's go ahead and take care of that. Uh, Now, I say that as a joke, but for some of you, men and women, when you hear that Christmas is close, that can trigger some level of stress or anxiety as you think about all that needs to get done before we meet again here this coming Sunday, right? All the presents that need wrapped, the house that needs cleaned and decorated, the food that needs to be prepared. It can get overwhelming, but maybe it's not that. Maybe the stress is coming because there's a a family member that you're not looking forward to seeing this year. Or a situation that hasn't been resolved that may come up during one of your Christmas get-togethers. Or maybe it's because you're not looking forward to it because there's, there's not much family around for you anymore. Like maybe what we heard this morning. Maybe there's someone that's not there anymore. That can make this a hard time to look forward to. And it can rob us of our joy and distract us from all that this season is truly about. And so that's why I love the fact that we take the time that we do here in December to remind ourselves again of of the hope, the peace, the joy, the love that we have in Christ and his coming here to earth. So I ask you, for these next two hours, well, no, maybe not two hours, but for these next 30 minutes here to put those worries aside And I want you to listen for what the Lord has for you this morning. Well, this morning, as has already been mentioned, I have been tasked with speaking about the advent of joy. And to help us with that, we'll be looking at Luke 2, 8 8 through 14. Luke 2, 8 through 14. So go ahead. I already hear it. Open up your Bibles or your phones, whatever device you might have. Please turn to Luke 2, and we'll begin here. In verse 8. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they, will, they were feel, filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among among those with whom he is pleased. Let's pray this morning. God, I thank you so much just for your word. God, I thank you so much that it is a word that we can put our full faith and trust in. 
Lord, it's a complete word, a word that is useful in each and every, in any situation, Father. And Lord, this morning as we look at the advent of joy through the eyes of these shepherds and the angels, Father, I just pray that you would help us to renew our joy this morning for you, Father, for this story, but Lord, for you as our Savior and our Lord. Father, we thank you and pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, this is a very familiar passage for a lot of us here this morning, as I'm sure many of you read this Luke 2 narrative as part of your family Christmases. And as such, you'll remember that Luke uses the opening part of this chapter in Luke 2 to explain the birth of Christ, most notably here where Christ was born, where Jesus was born. We see that here in verses 4 through 7. It explains that he was born in a manger in the town of Bethlehem. And while Mary and Joseph tend to their newborn baby, Luke now turns his attention to the next part of the story. As we see here, it involves a group of shepherds who, it says, were out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. Now, where did this next part take place? Well, verse 8 says that it was in the same region. So this would have been the region around where Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And to give you a little bit of context here, Bethlehem was about six miles south of Jerusalem. It was a very small town. Most scholars estimate its population was less than 1,000 to maybe about 2,000 that lived there during this time. It was definitely not the epicenter here of human activity at the time and definitely not where you would expect a Savior to be born. But that's just what God did here. Something else that you would not expect is that God was going to reveal this heavenly birth announcement to these random, dirty, stinky, tired shepherds. Now, why would I say that? What's, what's wrong with shepherds? Well, the shepherding profession in and of itself was not a bad thing. In fact, if you look back, many godly men in the Old Testament scripture had, had functioned in this role. Abraham, Moses, and David all were shepherds at one point or another. In fact, David would have been tending his flocks in this same area, maybe even in the same fields or hillsides as these shepherds about a thousand years earlier. But as the time went on, the view of this profession and the status of a shepherd was not very good. They were the lowest of the lows. Outside of having this terrible hygiene, they were seen as uneducated, unskilled, unreliable, dishonest, and even criminal. They didn't hold to the external washings that were required by the Levitical law. They often worked so much that they rarely celebrated the Sabbath which made these men outcasts because they violated the Jewish religious ceremonies. They were the least of all the special people. But isn't that what makes what God does here even better? Because looking at this situation here, this is the most important announcement that's ever been made in the history of the world. And knowing that, you wouldn't dare give this message to lowly shepherds. No, we, we need people to know about this. It needs to be announced with someone of influence, someone that's worthy to receive it. You know, give it to the high priest. 
Give it to the Pharisees or, or the Sadducees. I mean, even give it to Caesar Augustus. You know, in our day and age, you'd, you'd look for someone like the president or a, or a governor or maybe even someone who has a tremendous following on social media. You know, these guys, they're important. They have influence. They have a bunch of followers. Surely they're worthy of such an announcement and will get the word out. But no, God chose these shepherds in this field on this night to reveal the birth of the Savior of the world. It reminds me of the passage that we read in 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 29 that says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Right? And we, so we see that God is revealing to us in this passage and through this story that Jesus didn't primarily come for those who are great in the sight of man, those with influence and status. No, he came for the poor, the afflicted, the hurting, the meek, the captives, and he came for the lowly, yes, even these lowly shepherds. Mary reflects this same idea here in her song of praise at all that God is doing during this time. In Luke chapter 1, verse 52, she says this, He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. And we see this in action then as the birth of Jesus takes place in one of the humblest ways possible. And in this wonderful announcement that was given to these poor, unskilled shepherds. I guess if the Jews were studying hard enough, this would not have been a surprise though at all. According to the prophet Micah, this birth in Bethlehem was foretold to them. Micah 5.2 says, But you, O Bethlehem, Epaphrath, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. All right, that's talking about Jesus, the coming Messiah, being born in Bethlehem, the city of David. And as I read on there, I was struck in verse 4 that maybe this was the reason that God chose the shepherds to reveal the birth of his son. It says this, And he, Jesus, shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. So yes, Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Yes, he is the Son of God, but he also puts on the name of shepherd, something that wasn't looked upon as very great. And he brought honor and distinction to that name. Now, when we look at Jesus as shepherd, it's equated as one who is with us, one who protects us, one who leads us in paths of righteousness, one who comforts us, one who helps meet our needs. Could it be that God revealed the Messiah's birth to these shepherds because they would be the best to understand what it meant 
to be the great shepherd and what he was coming to do for his people. I think so. I think that had a lot to do that. That those who were acquainted with seeing the birth of lambs were now going to see this child born as the Lamb of God. I also think it points to another aspect of what Jesus shows us in his ministry. He regularly joins with people wherever they are and whoever they are. It doesn't matter if you're a common fisherman. It doesn't matter if you're a tax collector. It doesn't matter if you're a prostitute. It doesn't matter if you have leprosy. Here, it doesn't matter if you're living in a small town with a small status. He's revealing to us this awesome truth that he can use anyone anywhere. And you may think, I mean, you, you maybe have this thought. Well, I'm not special enough for God to use me, or I don't have enough influence for God to give me a word to speak to others. Well, you may be right. You might not have the capability to do that on your own. But that doesn't matter to God because it's not ultimately about us. It's about God. God's ways are higher than our ways. He uses those who are weak. He uses those who are despised. He uses those who are foolish in the world's eyes, those who don't have great influence. He uses all of them for his great purposes to show us that we cannot earn favor or righteousness or a calling from God by our own might, on our own accord, or by what we've achieved in this life. And so you brother or sister out there this morning that maybe feels like you're a nobody, I want to encourage you, God wants to use you. He is not against you. He is for you. He wants to use you for his glory. May that be some encouragement for you here this morning. Well, turning our attention back to Luke in verse 9, we see an angel of the Lord appear to them. And it says, The glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. So let's set the stage here. It's, it's nighttime. I'm sure these guys are tired. They're worn out from a hard day's work. Maybe getting ready to get some sleep, which shouldn't be too hard. Because you'd imagine that out in the fields, away from town, it would be pretty dark. Right? There's no electricity there's no flashlights, no headlamps, no cell phones with a blue light filter for them to see better at night. No, it, it's dark, right? Something that they are used to. A night just like any other night. And then all of a sudden, they see an angel and the glory of the Lord was shining around them. And this is significant because this is not just a light it is God manifesting his glory to these shepherds. As we see in Scripture, God's done this before. Sometimes he reveals his glory. Well, he reveals it in different ways here. Sometimes like a cloud, like he did to the Israelites in the wilderness. Or as a fire, like he did with Moses on the mountaintop. Or in a bright light, like we see in Ezekiel 1 or as we see in the story of the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus reveals his glory to the disciples. Or most notably in Revelation 21, 23 that says, And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. 
And this is significant as well because there have been no accounts of seeing an angel or seeing the light that surrounds the presence of God for at least 400 years, right, between the Old Testament and the New Testament. But all of that now is changing as we enter into the Gospels and especially these last few accounts here in Luke. And so these shepherds are met in an instant with an angel and the glory of God right in front of them. And what's their response? They were like, oh, this is awesome. Can't believe this is happening. This is great. This is awesome. No, there's no. What does it say here? They were fearful. I think any of us would have had this same response. But the angel quickly addresses this and delivers this message, saying in verses 10 and 11, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So the angel begins here with a fairly common phrase of fear not. We see this same expression of not being afraid at the angel's presence earlier in Luke as the angel Gabriel visits Zechariah in, in one instance and Mary in another, telling them of the things that were to come. Something else to note, as I was studying, I came across some commentary from John MacArthur that mentions that as you look throughout the entirety of Scripture, anytime God or a messenger of God says to not be afraid, it is followed up with God revealing a measure of his grace, that's what he says, a measure of his grace to the recipient. And what is God's grace in this message to the shepherds? Well, it's, it's that he's bringing good news to the shepherds. All right, the angel is essentially saying, don't be afraid, guys. I'm not bringing judgment. I'm not bringing condemnation. I'm not bringing a curse. No, this is good news. And this is not just good news, but it's the good news that will produce great joy. The Greek for good news translates into English as evangelize which simply means to tell people about the good news. And what is this good news? Well, it's that a Savior who is Christ the Lord has been born to you, and and not just born, but born this day in the city of David. Man, can you imagine that scene? Can you imagine being there? What awesome news They were given. What joy that flooded their initial fear-filled hearts, knowing that the God of all creation revealed the birth of his son to them. It's the joy that led them to go seek this newborn Messiah after the angels went back into heaven. And it's this joy that after having visited this God child in the manger, just as they were told, that it says here at the end of the story that they return glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen. It's the same type of joy we see foretold, let's go back again, by the angel Gabriel to Zechariah that his barren wife Elizabeth would bear a son. He says in Luke 1, 14 through 15, and you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great before the Lord. It's this same type of exuberant joy that is also present in Luke 1 when Mary goes to visit Elizabeth. The joy here is not noted between 
those two, which I'm sure they had joy, but from the baby Elizabeth is carrying. She says in verse 44, For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Right? This is John the Baptist they're talking about. He leaped for joy because he knew he was in the presence of the Son of God. And I love that, the fact that the first person to ever recognize Jesus for who he is was an unborn baby. And what did this unborn baby respond with? He responded with joy. And as believers, we've been given an opportunity to share in this great joy. Because you can't understand or contemplate the good news or the gospel without joy. And here's the good news, that God sent his one and only son into this world to live a perfect, sinless life, to die on the cross for our sins, resurrecting from the grave then three days later, conquering sin and death. And because of that, for those of us who have put our faith and trust in Christ, our sins have been forgiven completely. We are washed as white as snow, and our eternity changes from eternal condemnation in hell to eternal life in heaven, where we get to be with God and experience that bright glory forever. You guys joyful at that? Right? How can we not be anything but joyful at that? That is the greatest news that we could ever hear. And so hopefully most of us here understand that Jesus is our Savior, that this child born to Mary and Joseph is the promised Messiah. He is the Holy One, the Anointed One, the great prophet, priest, and king, like we've been studying in Hebrews. He's the Christ. And that would be enough to fill our cups with joy for a long time, knowing that we desperately needed a Savior, and now He has arrived. Right? Joy has come. Well, as I move into the final part of the message this morning, I want to focus on the last part there of verse 11, where Jesus is mentioned to not only be our Savior, but he is also the Lord. And the word, by, the word used here by the Greek-speaking Jews for Lord is the same word here that they use to translate the Hebrew word Yahweh, which is God. So we see that Jesus is not just the Son of God, but he is also God. So I want to use these last few moments to give us four evidences of the deity of Jesus as Lord. And my goal in doing this is to not confuse you or to put you asleep, uh, but to stir up your joy and wonder for him. Well, to start, I simply want to point to the evidence that we see in Scripture that refers to Jesus as the Lord God. He's part of the Trinity. We sang about it here this morning. It's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. All right, one God existing in three persons. Now, we hear that, but as we study it and dig into it, it is a hard concept to fully grasp. And I don't think we'll ever fully comprehend the Trinity and the vastness of who God is on this side of heaven. But just because we don't fully understand it doesn't mean that it's real, or doesn't mean that it's not real, and that it's not biblical. 
Now we see evidence for Jesus as God in the Gospel of John. John opens up his book by referring to Jesus as the Word. He says this in John 1.1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So we see Jesus has been present since the beginning because Jesus is God. Paul, the great apostle, in Titus 2.13, refers to Jesus as God by saying this, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In Colossians 1, Paul here, speaking about Christ, says this in verses 15 through 17. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things are held together. So here Paul attributes creation to Jesus, something that we know is attributed to God in Genesis 1:1. And he even goes on to say that all things were created for him and that in him all things are held together. So these are just several examples of Jesus being referred to God in Scripture. Next, we see that Jesus is Lord because he has authority over all natural events. There are many examples of this throughout the Gospels, but here are a couple. First, we see Jesus calming a storm in Luke 8. As he and his disciples were out on a boat, Jesus was sleeping and a storm rolled in. The disciples woke Jesus up crying, Master, Master, we are perishing. Verse 24 then says that Jesus awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves and they ceased and there was calm. And it says here the disciples were afraid and they marveled saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even winds and water and they obey him? We see then this same type of authority that Jesus has in all the miracles that he performed, turning water into wine and, and using a little boy's lunch to feed the 5,000, and, and there are many, countless others. We see this in the fact that he had the authority to heal sickness. Luke 4.40 says, All those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. So everything that Jesus touched was made well, it was made right, because he had the power. He had the authority to do it. And not just that, but verse 41 says that demons also came out of many crying, you are the son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. So Jesus had the authority. He had the power to not just make the sick well, but to cast out demons and bind them. He also had the authority over life itself. We see this in the story of Jesus raising a widow's son. Luke 7, verse 13 says, And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bear. And the bears stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. So Jesus has the power 
and the authority to grant life where there is none. And what was the response of the people there in this story? Well, it says they were afraid first, but that soon turned into joyful praise, saying God has visited his people. And so, too, we can be joyful because Jesus has the power and the authority over all natural things. Thirdly here, Jesus is Lord because he is everlasting. We see this promised right away in Luke's gospel. Chapter 1, as the angel Gabriel visits Mary, he says this in verses 31 through 33, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, and he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give, it, will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. So Jesus also speaks of his own eternality by saying in John 8, 58, he says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And this is a claim that not only says that he is God, but that he was there before time began and he will exist forever. We also see an example of this in Hebrews 1.6, where the writer says, But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So I hope it's abundantly clear this morning that Jesus will reign forever and ever. His kingdom cannot be shaken, and it will never end. And hopefully that is something that brings us tremendous joy, knowing that if we are his and he is ours, we will get to live with him forever in this kingdom that has no end. Lastly here, Jesus is Lord because he is joyful. We can know that because it is listed as one of the fruits of the Spirit. I know most of the kids in here this morning can probably list these with me, right? Love, joy, Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and what? Self-control. Very good. They are fruits of the Spirit because they are evidences of God in your life. These are characteristics then of who God is and is evident in the person of Jesus. We see Jesus pointing to the reality of this as he gives us the parable of the lost coin. He says this in Luke 15, verse 8. What woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So we get this picture of someone losing a coin here and being joyful, rejoicing when they have found it. I think we can all identify with that sort of thing, being joyful over finding something that was lost. You know, I usually rejoice when I finally come to the end of myself and, and ask my wife where something is, and then she knows right where it's at right away. It never happens. I think we've even kidded that we need to start a finding jar so that we can pay for Christmas or something like that because I'm sure I would be able to put a lot in there. Um, but did you catch the wording here? It doesn't say that there is joy among the angels, but it says that joy 
is before the angels, right? Not joy among the angels, but joy before the angels. Other translations will say that there is joy in the presence of the angels. So if, if, if it's not the angels' joy here, well, whose joy is it? Well, it's God's joy, right? This is, it's talking about God's joy. And what is he joyful about? Well, let's look at a, the other couple parables here that this one is put in the middle of where it's talking about something that was lost. On the front side of this parable is the parable of the lost sheep where Jesus says that there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. On the back side of this parable is the parable of the prodigal son, which is a familiar story for us. As the younger brother leaves, but then ultimately comes back to embrace the father, we see here the words to the disgruntled older brother. It says this, It is fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So what makes God joyful? Well, it's a sinner who repents, one who is lost but is now found, one who forsakes the world and, and all that it has to offer and runs to the Father. And that's why I think we have this scene that we do here in Luke 2, 13, where the multitudes of the heavenly host appear praising God. Right? Thousands of angels responding to the joy that is set before them from the Lord. And what is God joyful of here? Well, that his son has been born to us. That the process of redemption has begun. God has fulfilled his promise of the coming Messiah here, sending down the one who has come to save us from our sins. And the angels then can't help but praise him. What do they say here? They say, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Who is God pleased with? Well, it's those who have put their faith and their trust in his son, Jesus. Those whom he has called and drawn to himself. And guys, the invitation is for everyone. It's a message we've already heard in this account. Verse 10, it says that it is for all the people. And that's my prayer this morning, that everyone within the sound of my voice would answer the call to run to the Father, to embrace this Savior that was born for you and for me, to make him the Lord and master of your life, to follow him and to not look back. And as we do that, we can sing with these angels and give God all the glory and all the praise that is due his name. And what does it say here that we're promised in return? It says we're promised peace. Right? God gets the glory, we get the peace. God gets the glory, we get the joy. God gets the glory, we get eternity with him forever. Let's pray. God, we thank you, Lord, for this passage this morning. We thank you, Lord, that it's a reminder that, Lord, as we look at these lowly shepherds in the world's eyes at the time, Lord, Lord, and we see what you did with them, how, how you used them, Lord. 
Lord, that's a testament to what you have came down to this earth for in the form of a man in Jesus to do. Lord, you came for those who could not save themselves. You came for the lowly. You came for the meek. You came for the despised, Father. Lord, may that be some encouragement for us today and as we go from here. Lord, that that you can use anyone. You want to use anyone, not just for our sake, but Lord, for your sake, for your purposes, to bring honor and glory to you. Lord, I pray this morning that each and every one of us here would have a joy, Father God, a joy in what this Christmas season is all about, Lord. Even in the midst of the distractions, those important things that we need to get done, Father, and Lord, even in the midst of maybe some hard things, some things that come back during this season of, Lord, of of what we don't have or, or who's not there, Father God, Lord, that we would always recall and remember the joy that we have in you, Lord. Because you are our Savior, Lord. You are the promised Messiah. You are the one who went to the cross to pay the penalty for us, to save us from our sins. Lord, you are that, but you are also our Lord. You are God in the flesh. And because of that, there is so much for us to be joyful for and to rejoice and to be happy about. And so, Father, let that be our focus as we leave here today and as we enter into this final stretch of the Christmas season, Father. We thank you. We love you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.